Welcome to Meet the Leader, a podcast where top leaders share how they're tackling the world's toughest challenges. Today's leader, Visa Executive Chairman and former CEO Al Kelly Jr. He'll talk to us about financial inclusion as a multiplier for change. Subscribe to Meet the Leader on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review us. I'm Linda Lucina from the World Economic Forum, and this is Meet the Leader. With digital payments, no longer does someone who lives in a village have to go to a city to use cash to buy something. We can start this episode off with some good news. The world is finally making progress on financial inclusion. According to the World Bank, 76% of adults now have a bank or mobile account. That's up from 51% in 2011. A bank account, you may or may not know, can serve as a sort of tell that so many other good things are happening. For instance, employment. A job is a key reason that people open a savings account to begin with. It's also a tell for education. Adults with a primary education or less, especially in developing countries, are less likely to have a bank account. Those people are left without a gateway into the global economy. For these folks, it's harder to save or build wealth for their families. For entrepreneurs, it's harder to get credit or grow their businesses. And for communities, it becomes harder and harder to withstand the next global shock. Amidst a swirl of challenges that we're facing now, and I'm going to list them, geopolitical conflict, humanitarian crisis with a record number of refugees, millions displaced by climate shocks, and a potential global recession, helping people withstand shocks and getting payments to people who need them has never been more important. There's still plenty to do. Inclusion reveals where digital infrastructure is lacking, for instance, or where regulations need a reboot. But there's cause for hope. At the 2023 annual meeting, I talked to Al Kelly Jr. of Visa about that hope. At the time, he was wrapping up his tenure as CEO and as of February 1st, became executive chairman. I talked to him about financial inclusion and what is needed next. Al also talked to me about leadership, what makes great public leadership effective, and his early job at the White House and the lessons that shaped him to this day. He'll talk about all of this. But first, I'll let him tell us a little bit more about what a financially inclusive world looks like. Well, it looks like a world where consumers as individuals, countries, economies, and businesses all thrive. Uh, the more we are digital, the more we open up the world to more buyers uh, for people that are selling goods, the more we open up more transparency for governments. We make it easier for people to get subsidies if they uh, have that need uh, from governments. It, it shrinks the world a bit in terms of giving people who are small business owners access to uh, marketplaces and customers outside the borders of uh, of their country. In in short, it it really really opens up the world to everyone in a much greater way than previously had been the case. And what what holds it back? What holds it back this access? Well, I think it's a, it's a number of things, but uh, a couple come to mind. One is we we have to make sure that our regulations not restrictive. We need uh, to promote open flow of data. We need to promote interoperable standards that uh, everybody follows. Uh, actually, data localization isn't the greatest public policy when it comes to actually trying to promote uh, digital payments. 
advances in infrastructure are really critical. Uh, we have to have the ability, if you're going to get involved in digital payments or the digital economy, you've got to have access to the internet. In order to have access to the internet, you have to have broadband. And broadband is something that even in developed countries like the United States, there are still too many people who don't have access to uh, broadband internet access. And obviously in other parts of the world, parts of South America, parts of Africa, it's, it's even a, uh, uh, a bigger, a bigger problem. And we have to continue to advance uh, technology. Remittances are a huge part of uh, uh, what happens in the economies around the world. About 800 million people a year receive remittances for basic things like food and clothing and education. In fact, the funds flow of remittances is about 770 uh, billion dollars. And increasingly, we want to see more of that be fully digital end-to-end -end so that nowhere along the way does cash have to be uh, enter into the picture. And the reality is, in the last five years, it's moved from 3% of all remittances being fully end-to-end -end with no cash in or out to about 13% and, and more to go. And we at Visa are doing a lot to try to enable that. We have a capability called Visa Direct, which reaches seven billion endpoints in the world, three and a half billion debit cards, two million bank accounts, and one and a half million wallets where people can send money from any point in the world to another point in the world. And it's a digital movement throughout for the entire cycle of the movement of funds. Remittances will seemingly be all the more important, not just with the refugee crisis, but also with the people displaced by the climate. What other programs are key to support financial inclusion? Uh, for instance, things that you're working on at Visa. Well, one of the things that's really basic in all of this, and Dobby doesn't get enough attention, is just education. Uh, we do uh, a, a lot of education. We have educational programs that we deliver in, in 48 different languages around the world, and we work with, with governments and uh, universities and other uh, entities to spread that education from farmers in uh, China to uh, refugees in uh, South America, and really anybody who needs basic financial skills. Similarly, we have similar programs for small business owners where we're, they're, they're a little more sophisticated. They have some of the basic financial skills, but as a business owner, they need to understand uh, more about how to invest more in their business, how, how does working capital work? How do they gain greater access to capital uh, and credit if they need it to grow their business? So I think uh, educational type programs and uh, is something that we put a big emphasis on at Visa. Blue skying it, just in a block and tackle way, what would people maybe, uh, how would their day-to-day -day life be different in their homes, in their communities, uh, 50 years from now, if we've solved this access problem? Well, it's a great point. You know, uh, digital is better than cash, and a basic financial account is a start, but it's insufficient. And we really need to get to a point of full participation in the financial mainstream to really feel like we've accomplished what we need to accomplish around the world and uplift literally one and a half trillion people, a billion people who are outside the financial mainstream. So that means actually moving people into savings accounts, moving people to the point where they get access to credit, that they understand more sophisticated products like insurance, that they actually understand how to move remittance monies from point A to point B to from families and friends. Uh, in a way that's secure and, and, and safe. They need to understand how to get access into all the various marketplaces so that if you're a small business, you're not 
you're not dependent solely on the people who can physically get to your uh, uh, store or your uh, bodega or whatever it is, the the reality is the entire world is open to all of these people. So I can be a young entrepreneur and through a, a good uh, omni-channel type of capability, I can sell my product around the world as opposed to just around my uh, my village. I also think we will uplift many more women and minorities as well, which is critically important in a world where uh, we don't have equality in terms of a wealth distribution in any way, shape, or form. So that's another, I think, uh, outcome that we're seeking over the coming decades through a growth in financial inclusion and then a deepening financial inclusion from starting with access and deepening the relationship into full participation across the financial uh, uh, mainstream. We just released our global risk report uh, the other day. And uh, of course, they've noticed that it's a poly crisis. We have an energy crisis, a climate crisis, but uh, and also there's been this sort of drumbeat that a growing uh, likelihood of a global recession. Um, how will that uh, sort of make this idea of access even even more critical uh, for people as uh, sort of their economic uh, winds are shifting? Well, I think uh, in good or bad times, we have to stay focused on this. Uh, I, in many ways, the, the, the pandemic uh, actually helped in some ways. It, it got more people uh, interested in realizing the importance of e-commerce. And so in the last two years, Linda, many more people millions of people around the world figured out how to go shop online for the first time ever. And that's a very sustaining habit uh, that got got created over over time. But we have to make sure that as economies, as they will, will ebb and flow from very robust and strong economies to weaker economies. And certainly there's a, a strong sense, I think, amongst uh, uh, leaders around the world that 2023 will be a more challenging time. We have to make sure that we can continue to commit ourselves to making sure that financial inclusion is a, a very important uh, aspect of what we do because it doesn't pay dividends right away. It, it takes time and, and we can't let more time pass. We have to make sure we stay committed to it. Why is it particularly important to you? You know, I mean, like when you, when you think about this, you know, what's driving you? What motivates you? Well, I think as the, the leader of a, of a global financial company, that uh, wants to see more people participating. I mean, the idea of buying and selling goods is is so basic to the world, and small businesses in, gen in most countries are a real engine for growth. So I've always had a, an incredible passion for uh, the small business owner and uh, the challenges that she or he faces uh, around the around the world. And I think that for Visa to thrive over time, we need more people into the financial uh, the ma financial mainstream. And frankly, it is completely aligned with our purpose as a company. Our purpose as a company is to uplift everyone everywhere by being the best way to pay and be paid. And it is that purpose that drives this mission-oriented aspect of our employees who want to see us not just figure out how to make money, but actually truly try to uplift people everywhere. And uh, you know, th so it's so consistent with our mission to drive financial inclusion, again, starting with access, but trying to then promote it further. And, be, and having education is a big part of that. What is the role, in your opinion, of uh, public leadership? What is, what is their role in this time? 
Well, I think public-private partnership is, is critical to try to drive issues such as these. And I think dialogue and collaboration, which are words that we use here at uh, Davos in a lot of discussions, is, is truly what's re required here, that government has to make sure that uh, they are talking to uh, the private sector and making sure that regulations that they're putting in place are actually going to generate uh, uh, it, better growth in their economies. It's going to cause uh, innovation to thrive. It's going to ca cause security to be ro robust and uh, important. It's going to make sure that their particular countries are desirable in terms of uh, places that people want to shop, people want to visit, etc. And I think that uh, as the world shrinks, more harmonization of regulation around the world is going to help the small business owner in particular. If you're a small business owner, and you have to deal with a set of a different array of regulations in different countries, it's awfully expensive for you to figure out how to com comply so you actually can contract in terms of the number of places that you feel like you can in invest in. And if you're a government that's tougher to do business with, you're going to be on that list of, of contractions in every small business situation, and you don't want that. And this is where I think global companies like ours, who have the ability to work with virtually every government around the world, can help governments understand best practices um, and, uh, and, and other initiatives that have helped uh, economies thrive. Events like this one, uh, at their heart, uh, seek for excellence in public leadership. Everyone wants to be 5% better. <laughs> How can we do a little bit more? Um, in your mind, what are the, uh, maybe a, a few key must-have characteristics of, you know, that is excellence in public leadership. You have to have this. Well, I think you have to realize that you work for the people, number one. Uh, number two, I think certainly, well, you have to keep an eye on the uh, urgent problems of the day. You have to have a focus on the important uh, problems of the future and realize that there are things you're going to need to do that might not happen or might not reach full fruition during your time in public service, but you're doing a, a tremendous uh, uh, amount to help uh, people start to get further uplifted over, over time. I think obviously listening and collaboration skills are critical. And then frankly, like any other business, volunteer, big, small, uh, Fortune 500 company, talent is critical. You know, good leaders put uh, in government need to put good people in place who can help advance their agenda because a, a good leader can't do it themselves. It, it always takes a team regardless. So I think those are some of the, the attributes that I would expect and want to see in somebody who's a very strong uh, public servant leader. And, and during this time with the the, uh, the poly crisis, um, how can leaders prioritize? What would you recommend? What is there like a, a framework or a, a question they should ask themselves to sort of stay on the right path? Well, I've always thought there's is, there's an importance between making sure that, uh, and I alluded to this earlier, the difference between what's urgent and what's important. Uh, there's you know when I run a, a big global company like ours, something goes wrong in the world every single day. And if I overly focused on the problem of the day, while it seems urgent at the time, I'm going to lose the big picture of what is truly important 
uh, for the, the best uh, growth of the company and the economies around the world into the future. So this is where having good talent is in place is important, where they can deal with the urgent issues of the day. And every good leader has to stay focused on what's important for the, the, the future and, and be looking around corners and not getting sucked into uh, all of the day-to-day tactical, tactical issues that can suck you in if you allow them to. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about your background. Um, I read that uh, that you worked for under Ronald Reagan as head of the infor, uh, head of information systems, and you were just in your twenties, like your late twenties. Um, and I just wanted to to ask you, what did that experience teach you about leadership? You're surrounded by leaders. You're in the, the you know the, the seat of the, the government. Uh, what did it teach you about leadership? Oh, it was a tremendous learning lab for me, yeah. uh, Linda. I I managed uh, civil servants. I managed presidential appointees. I managed uh, professional technical people. Uh, many of them at the time, I think I was 27 to 28 when I was there, many of them uh, older than I was. And, uh, and in the government, you don't necessarily have the same tools that you have in the, in the private sector. And so, you know, I learned a lot and made mistakes in terms of how you motivate uh, people, how you direct people, how you uh, make sure that uh, you are giving them the proper coaching that is helping them continue to develop uh, themselves as uh, as professionals. So I would say it was very formative uh, in terms of uh, my leadership development. And is there something that you do now that just would not have occurred to you at the beginning of your career because you just wouldn't have, right? Is there something that, that really helps? Well, I've learned two things. One is uh, it's very important to give people context. Yes. Um, how is what they're doing every day fit in the big picture of the purpose of a company, the strategy of a company? I think people don't want to just do tasks. They want to understand how what they're working on is actually advancing uh, the purpose of the company, the strategy of the company, how it's tied to the revenue flow of the company, et cetera. So I think that one of the things that's very important, and I, I put a lot of emphasis on it, is to make sure that we're constantly giving people context. Uh, I, I'm a frustrated professor. I love to explain to people how uh, the basics work and therefore allowing them to see how their work fits into the bigger picture. The other thing, obviously, is communications. I, I don't think you can communicate enough, and I try to stay extraordinarily visible in my company. During the, the pandemic, I started a weekly video. Um, and I think I've done a hundred of them now uh, and uh, doing them every other week. It was a great way to connect with people while they were home and making them still feel like they're part of a, a bigger company. And sometimes I was I would, the videos would be very short. Sometimes weeks they'd be longer. Sometimes they'd be very serious. Uh, other times I would be introducing them a bit to my, my family and sharing pictures and, uh, et cetera. So they were very, very well received by our employees because I think that people were, were anxious to still while they were home to have that connection to the mothership of the company. And, uh, so I think communication is an extraordinarily important part of every leader's job. Is there a habit that you employ during your work day that, gosh, if you didn't do this, uh, you, everything would fall apart. You just can't work without it. If I don't have a pen in my hand or in my vicinity, uh, I, I go into convulsions. I, I, I think by, by writing often, actually. And uh, a lot of times I'll collect my thoughts on a little scribbles on a piece of paper before I actually will will um, uh, communicate them orally. And I still use a HP-12C uh, calculator. It's uh, I'm very numerate, uh, get into the numbers, and I'm, uh, you know, I have fantastic uh, degree of curiosity, which probably drives people crazy inside the company from, uh, from time to time. But those are all 
habits I've had from years. What are you really curious about right now? What, what's the question or a thing that you're really digging into and learning about? Well, I think every good leader is thinking about the same, the same amongst the same things. One of them is, what am I not thinking about? <laughs> you know, what, what am I uh, missing? Uh, what, you know, could happen in three to five years that uh, I'm not putting sufficient energy behind um, uh, anticipating? I think the second thing that uh, most leaders probably worry about is talent. Uh, do I have the right people in the right jobs with the right uh, focus and the right motivation. Uh, because I think if you're thinking about the right things and you put terrific people in place and give them proper context and crop, proper direction, I think that's uh, a, a winning formula for, uh, for the most part. Uh, is there a book you recommend? You know, yesterday was the six-month uh, anniversary of the death of Dee Hock, who was the founder of Visa. And, and Dee's got a, a book, Many to One, that I encourage people to look at. It's the story of, of Visa. And I think, you know, Dee doesn't get the um, credit he should get. He, he's, he's a, a, in my mind, one of the great inventors. Uh, the whole idea of, of the electronic movement of m money using interoperable standards around the world was really his dream and, and, and vision. Uh, and uh, I give him an awful lot of credit. It was, for me, it was a, a, a real honor to get to know him over the last six years up until his, his death last uh, July. But uh, he, and a lot of his thinking, not just on, on business, but his thinking on leadership uh, resonates greatly with me. And I think it would with many other people. And what would they take from it? How would they change? I think there's a lot of uh, elements of what Dee did in terms of engendering real cooperation um, um, amongst people. Some of his uh, uh, leadership tendencies and characteristics in terms of empowering uh, uh, people, uh, I think would all be things that people could find interesting and take something from. You know, people are here all week. They're talking about uh, solving the world's biggest problems. It's an inspiring week. Uh, and then everyone goes home. How can they um, make sure that these ideas get uh, sort of a spread to all of their organizations and people they work with? What is the one practical thing every leader needs to do when they get home to make sure that this continues throughout the rest of the year? Well, for, for at least for us at Visa, uh, Davos is an extension of what we do every day, which is meeting with clients, listening and advising. And uh, we come here and meet across the five of us who are in our primary delegation. Probably we'll see over uh, 100 clients during the course of the week and take uh, rigorous notes and get them back to all of the key people across the organization so that they understand what our clients are saying, what they're thinking, what they need. And, in, and therefore, we know how to serve them better going forward. And so that's probably our number one objective coming out of a meeting like, like Davos is to understand globally, because we get such a great view of uh, what people are thinking globally at a point in time, is making sure we capture what we've heard, share it back with our broader organization, and then that enables us to serve our clients better. That was Al Kelly Jr. Thanks so much to Al, and thanks so much to you for listening. A transcript of this episode and my colleagues' episodes, Radio Davos and the Book Club podcast, is available at wef.ch slash podcasts. This episode of Meet the Leader was presented and produced by me, with Juan Toran as studio engineer and Gareth Nolan driving studio production. That's it for now. I'm Linda Lucina with the World Economic Forum. Have a great day.